Good morning, it is a blessing to be with you today, and I mostly appreciate Tommy offering me the opportunity to preach today. In honor of his awesome preaching skills, I am wearing my big cross. <laughs> I want to thank you for the much needed month of renewal leave I was able to take in July. It was such a joy for Butler and I to share this time together, to travel across the United States and see what a beautiful land we have. We enjoyed precious time with friends and family, too much good food, and the freedom of having almost no schedule. I had time to read several excellent books, to share in worship and fellowship with some dear friends in faith I don't get to see too often, and to do a lot of dreaming. It was a restful, refreshing, life-giving time. Now on to the sermon. The late George Burns said, the secret to a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and to have the two as close as possible. <laughs> I'll do my best in that regard today, but these few verses have so much to say. These are a summation of Paul's entire argument from chapters nine through 11. And true to form, Paul's writings are just packed with theological concepts and challenges, so much so that we could create a whole sermon series out of just one chapter. I'm gonna hit the basics for us today, what this meant to the early church and what message there is for us today. And I encourage you to dig deeper into Romans on your own. So here's my good beginning. Last Sunday in Mixed Blessings, during our farewell brunch for Dan and Chris Witt, we answered a question of the day, as we usually do, about how many times we had moved in our lives. We have a few members who are military, a couple who are Methodist ministers or children of Methodist ministers, so they had moved frequently. Uh, I shared with the group that my dad was neither of those, but as an electrical dispatcher for TVA in the 50s and 60s, that's the 1950s and 60s, our family was required to move quite often and had already done so about 20 times before I came along, and I'm the youngest. The hope that he might change that pattern was one thing that prompted my dad to apply for and ultimately take a job in the Bureau of Reclamation in the Dakotas. Moving from South Dakota, from Nashville to South Dakota in 1967 was a tough adjustment for all of us Hicks girls. There were four of us. My oldest sister had expected to be a senior at Hillsboro High School in Nashville, and I was ready to enter kindergarten. We stuck out like sore thumbs with our twangy accents, our Southern manners, wearing dresses year-round when all the other girls wore pants, and our total lack of knowledge about farming. Even the paint colors on the walls in our house were different from everybody else's paint colors. We were just weird. When we moved to North Dakota a few years later, those differences seemed even more pronounced. I hadn't been in third grade long when the teacher asked me a question in front of the whole class, and I responded like a good Southern girl by saying, yes, ma'am. The teacher snapped her finger at me 
and she said, you stop that right now. And I said, yes, ma'am. Because <laughs> I didn't know what I'd done wrong. I would say yes, ma'am, two more times before I was sent to the principal's office, still unsure as to my offense. When it was made clear to me that such language was considered sass in the Dakotas, I asked if I could call my mom. And she promptly came to the school and offered the principal a lesson in Southern etiquette. Now that episode sparked a wave of yes ma'ams among my classmates, but they were always directed to me. It became a way for them to remind me every day that I was different. I was an outsider. I was not one of them. Now we all have stories of personal rejection, many more hurtful than that. In this section of Romans, Paul is tackling a similar issue with the Jews, who had been largely rejected by their society after Jesus' death. Their rejection was not so much personal as it was corporate. The entire nation of Jews was now suspect, even though they had been known as God's chosen people in covenant relationship with God, kings and judges and prophets on behalf of God, builders of God's temple who received God's law and proudly followed it to the letter. They had held a unique place in God's purposes and God had done everything possible to encourage the nation of Israel to be faithful, including sending his own son, Jesus, a Jew. Yet they had rejected and crucified Jesus. So how were his followers to think or think about or accept the Jews now? Had God rejected his own people? Paul himself was a Jew, so he had a high stake in this question. In these few verses, Paul reminds his readers that even though the Jews as a nation had abandoned Jesus, not all the Jews had rejected him. All of his apostles were Jews, and more Jews were being converted to Christianity every day under Paul's leadership, along with those who were not Jews, the ones we call Gentiles. Paul believed in God's promises. He had experienced grace firsthand, knew how God had gifted and called him, and believed that these things could not be revoked. God promised that Abraham's followers would be the bearers as well as the recipients of salvation. And Paul says this is still what will happen. In other words, God's word had not failed and it would not fail. This was good news for the Jews of Paul's day, good news for the Gentiles who are being welcomed into the family of God, and it's good news for us today. Even if God's most beloved people reject God, God does not reject them. Let me say that again. It's really important. Even if God's most beloved creatures, God's own chosen people, reject God, God does not reject them. And God continues to seek them 
to pour out his grace and mercy on their behalf, to call them to himself, and to call us to be in ministry on their behalf. In this sermon series, Broken, Good News for Troubled Times, Tommy has sought to share with us how God sustains us in the midst of our brokenness, both within and without, helping us to find wholeness and unity no matter what crises we are facing. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, we can see that the God of our tradition is connected to the brokenness of the world, as are we. Thankfully, God's response to our brokenness was ultimately given through the grace-filled life and death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. God's grace is meant to launch us into a new way of life, a journey of walking into the good works God has prepared for us. As writer Anne Lamott writes, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are and it does not leave us where it found us. We are not merely to experience the movement of spiritual transformation in our own lives, but our faith is, an, is intended to make a difference, not only to us, but in the lives of those around us. The Episcopal Diocese of Ohio put it this way on a billboard, love God, love neighbor, change the world. What a powerful word Paul brings us. If God's grace is big enough to cover even those who crucified his son, how much more can God reach out to us when we are hurting and provide the grace needed to heal our broken world? Even if as a group the Jews rejected Christ, there remained a remnant who was faithful and Paul teaches us that we cannot reject an entire group just because of the actions of a few. Paul even goes so far as to say that the disobedience of the Jews gets credit for bringing about Christ's crucifixion and thus God's mercy. Verses 30 and 31 read, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may receive mercy. God's grace knows no bounds. So what does this mean for us today as the body of Christ, called to love God and neighbor? Just consider for a moment all the groups of our people in this state, in our nation, in our world, who are currently being judged and rejected by society, dismissed, left out, or just given up on because of their behavior, their life choices, their situations. I have the privilege of preparing lunch on Fridays at the Journey Home, a Christian ministry that serves the homeless and disadvantaged here in Rutherford County. And I have the best time creating the best meal I can with almost nothing <laughs> and sorting out all the food donations that Tim Tackett and Bob Richardson bring us from local restaurants and groceries every Friday. But even greater than the cooking and the fellowship 
is the opportunity to offer a smile, a caring touch, or a word of hope or acceptance or encouragement to these children of God who seem to have been rejected, forgotten, and discarded by our society. Sometimes I hear that it's their choice, that they could do better if they wanted to, and that we shouldn't be offering a handout. But to me, nothing is more unjust in this world than the lack of food and water for those who hunger and thirst. And I believe God commands us as the church to provide it. If you'd like to help me some Friday, just let me know. And who is it in our own lives that we reject personally? Sometimes we label them the black sheep of the family, those wild ones who refuse to submit to the gospel, who have made life choices with which we disagree, or who are just not the kind of people we want to hang around with. In our own brokenness, we humans can condemn those who do not fit into our ideal of what is good and righteous. I know I am guilty of such judgment. But if what Paul says is true, that God is unwilling to reject even those who have rejected God, and if we are called to live into the image of God, then we too must consider who it is we have rejected even those who have spurned Christ and the church, and we must have mercy. God sees all people as his beloved creations, desires to be in relationship with all, and through, through God's grace and mercy, God never gives up seeking that connection. In his book on the changes and challenges of the post-pandemic church, entitled Signs of Life, Jay Sidebotham writes, while some of us are called to pastor churches, all of us as the body of Christ are called to pastor our community. Our ministry as a church is God's work in the world. I have that on a screen and I want you to say it with me, please. All of us as the body of Christ are called to pastor our community. Our ministry as a church is God's work in the world. Thank you. Paul was called to pastor not only the early church, but the Jews who had nurtured him in the faith. Those who stand before you as clergy and professional church leaders, we are called to pastor the church today. But how do we pastor our community? St. Mark's ministries embody God's work in the world in so many ways. We operate a food bank, provide furniture and begin again boxes, build houses, support our neighborhood elementary school, and much more, seeking to meet some of the most basic needs of our neighbors. We offer support and encouragement to people dealing with addiction, grieving the loss of a loved one, and caring for those with dementia. And we seek to integrate worship, study, and prayer into all these ministries. Although we haven't really used that terminology, there are countless ways we as a church pastor our community. 
I hope you are involved in at least one of these ministries in a regular way. And what if we took seriously the notion that all of us are called to pastor the individuals in our neighborhood and our community, that we are Christ's hands and feet and voice in a community, in our grocery stores, in our restaurants, in our gas stations and movie theaters, at those ball games and when driving our cars, regardless of labels or political parties or genders or economics or behaviors or any of those things that we allow to divide us or even revile us. How would it change the way we treat individuals outside of the church if we saw ourselves as their pastor? On Wednesday, August 27th, we're gonna host a Hey Neighbor panel in the gym to help us learn more about our immediate neighborhood and how we might do more to reach out with the grace and mercy of Christ. I pray we'll learn more about it, what it means to be a pastor in our community, and I hope you'll be there to enjoy a free meal and hear what our panelists have to say. There will also be a fun neighborhood scavenger hunt for our youth and our children. Has God rejected his people? Paul says, by no means that God continues to seek us even in our brokenness. How eagerly and diligently ought we to unite with God in God's persistent, relentless search for the broken and the lost, the willful and the rebellious, the scorned and the rejected, and those who have not heard about or experienced the great grace and mercy of Christ. God's grace can heal our brokenness. God's grace can heal the brokenness in our church and denomination. And with our help, God's grace can also bless our neighborhood and our community. And that sassy third grader I mentioned a little earlier, that same year, her church gave her a Bible and taught her how to read it. Then they sent her to church camp where she made friends and asked Jesus into her heart. And you know the rest of that story. <laughs>